Hello, I'm Seth Simmons, and welcome to Season 1, Episode 3 of Opt Out. Opt Out is a show where I sit down with passionate people to learn why privacy matters to them, the tools and techniques they found and leveraged, and where we encourage and inspire others towards personal privacy and data sovereignty. Have you been wanting to learn more about mobile privacy, but not sure where to start? This episode, we're going to sit down with Max Tannehill to chat about mobile OSs for those seeking privacy, and Calyx OS in particular. Welcome on the show, Max. Thank you very much for having me, Seth. Yeah, man, it's good to good to finally sit down and and chat. How's your how's your week been going so far? Um, all good. Yep. Yeah. Um, I think like all of us, we're pretty busy at the moment. Um, uh, we've all got kind of day jobs that take our time and various other drama in the evenings and and mornings, or whatever, with uh, stuff happening online. Obviously, the world's a little different. Um, but no, I can't complain. It's uh, overall a good place to be where I am. Awesome. Well, why don't you just go ahead and jump in? And tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and and we'll get rolling. Yeah, sure. Um, so, uh, I've been. Um, I, I'm obviously from the UK. Um, I, I'm currently living in uh, Singapore. Have been for about the last kind of uh, over ten years now. And um, uh, uh, I work uh, primarily like financial services. Uh, so that's kind of where I've where I've been. Where I've kind of cut, cut my teeth as a career. Um, very kind of varied um, time in in, in there. Um, generally kind of work kind of systems implementation um, so kind of trade and order execution uh, that's kind of uh, I suppose my bread and butter now um, so it sometimes surprises some people given um, certainly in this space um, we tend to, to talk amongst kind of privacy and um, uh, and uh, certainly kind of on the cryptocurrency space which, which is where I kind of uh, uh, obviously have come across you Seth and um, a lot of our kind of mutual uh, acquaintances and friends um, um, but then kind of about a year ago, um, um, which was a kind of culmination of a number of things, um, I, I set up Mamushi um, Mobile, uh, which is a website for retailing um, secure phones, um, essentially. And our primary um, uh, partner at that time uh, was Copperhead, uh, who were releasing, or who had been releasing for a while, uh, software specifically designed for uh, for, for Pixel phones. So yeah, the, the business was set up to essentially help them um, Get those devices into the hands of uh, of ordinary individuals, such as uh, such as you and myself, and kind of really kind of bring those kind of devices uh, to people, and that may not have already, um, already been able to get hold of them through kind of customizing their own device, um, you know, in a way that was um, probably a little less um, less approachable uh, for some people, um, you know, that are not used to say technically loading onto a new operating system of their phone or potentially can't even get hold of that operating system uh, to put onto the phone. And uh, really that, I suppose, came about from um, kind of many years um, in the cryptocurrency space, um, both as an investor and hobbyist. And it kind of, you know, from that experience, I, I, I'd seen the need for that kind of, um, uh, that operating system and that service. And, I, and um, uh, so, yeah, sat, set that up a year ago and um, quite a lot has happened since. Awesome. Well, so you basically have two full-time jobs, <laughs> <Right. laughs> working in the yeah, it's, regular it's, world. Yeah, it's been. Um, it's, it, I suppose it's been easier, actually. Funnily enough, since the um, uh, since the pandemic, um, uh, you know, normally in Singapore, it's uh, very common for people to travel extensively. It's, it's only just a small city state, uh, so uh, when life shuts down and you can't travel as easily, um, you, you do tend to. Um, to, to need to find other hobbies, and that's actually fundamentally one of the reasons why I started it. Uh, we've been going through um, a bit of a lockdown um, here, and um, I kind of had extra time. Couldn't go to the gym 
um, as easily. Um, so it was kind of something to keep myself focused with at the time and uh, have, so have something to do. And you know, when you've got kind of a few hours concentrated on the weekend and you haven't got all the, the distractions of a gym, swimming pool, a social life, um, it yeah, on that on that plus side, it's amazing what you can get done. Yeah, I definitely definitely understand. I feel like a lot of people started up side projects or side businesses or something like that during this yeah. this extra time that we have. Um, or learning, learning a musical instrument or something like that. Quite a few of those things. Yeah. Everyone needed something. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm curious. I mean, if you don't mind mentioning, uh, what was it that drew you to Singapore? I've been there for work in the past and love the city, but um, curious, what drew you there from the UK? Oh, um, so so fun, fun enough, actually. Yeah. Um, it was very much something that I think I um, was actually not. It was just really uh, the, uh, the the just the needs of the job at the time. Um, my, my boss, uh, um, when I was the first company I've been working at, was actually based in the US. Um, I fully expected to be living and working in the US. I think as a young guy um, at that time, without any um, personal commitments, I was uh, very happy to travel, kind of see the world, um, and um, I was. You know, felt a little constrained in um, um, having, you know, just being stuck still in the same country I've grown up in. I think, yeah, if you've kind of got a bit of a travel bug, you in, you enjoy going somewhere else. But really, yeah, it just turned out that um, there was kind of space in Singapore at the time. Uh, they needed someone to do some particular projects. I got sent out as a young guy, and um, um, at that point, you know, it was I hadn't even been to Asia, and I'd already kind of agreed to to, to kind of leave and work out there. So it just kind of happened from there, really. And um, since then, I've just stayed there. You know, obviously, once you're in a new place, and you you then start putting roots down, um, you end up suddenly realizing ten years has passed. <laughs> so it's very much it was yeah, it wasn't planned. Nice. And uh, was it was it something with that job or with cryptocurrency that woke you up to the need for personal privacy or, or just something totally unrelated? Um, so I wouldn't say it's unrelated, uh, but I, I would say the whole kind of personal privacy and, uh, uh, and cryptocurrency thing kind of came about around the same time. Um, and I actually, funnily enough, I can't even really pinpoint um, when it happened. Um, there's a few few little things I suppose that um, jump out at me. Um, I think that to put it best, um, to kind of take kind of a bit of a step back, probably around 2010 for example, I mean I'd never been a particularly a, you know, a technical person, I hadn't been interested in, you know, I wouldn't, I'd be very normie as it would be discussed, I would have had like Windows on my machine um, prior to 2010 or 11 um, and uh, you know I wouldn't have really cared particularly about security devices or privacy as such um, but I think a few things change is, is, is that once I moved abroad um, I was kind of a fairly early adopter of stuff like telegram and whatsapp just primarily for keeping in touch with family and friends and so you find yourself just because of the situation you're in using that kind of tech um, because you need to um, because you, know, you haven't got the convenience of just being close by to, to pop around and see someone uh, that you know near you because they're in close physical proximity, so I was using kind of you know, video calling and all that um, um, and you know stuff over VoIP, all that kind of earlier than some of my friends. Um, but then I, I think uh, a few, few things have kind of happened. Is is that I think at the time I think Snowden allegations were you know some revelations rather were had been coming out, and I think for someone like me um, who you know, even with the background that I had. Um, I think it was a bit of a, it, it fundamentally changed 
who I put trust in. And, um, you know, regardless of your opinions on Snowden, um, and I, I suppose even back then I would have considered myself kind of relatively patriotic, um, probably kind of conservative, you know, with a small C and right wing. Um, it was hard not to have your faith shaken in some of the, um, the institutions that we'd allowed. I think, you know, um, I believe probably back then it was completely fine for an intelligence agency to be able to, you know, to listen in on me should I need to. Really, back then it, I, I would have believed that because I thought that fundamentally the incentives were okay. And I think that one of the things that happened with Snowden is is that he he um, he he revealed a lot that just showed how you know when you have got that kind of power centrally. Um, is uh, yeah that power that exists um, uh, yeah in government those incentives aren't always okay and that what the governments are getting up to doesn't necessarily reflect the will of the people even if it does that isn't necessarily morally or just uh, morally justifiable so I think as that was coming out it was making me probably back then looking at more kind of open source type software that I felt could be more trusted. Um, and I was beginning again to look into um, encryption. And I do remember around that time diving into reading about public key encryption. So I think I was even using PGP before I even discovered Bitcoin. And you know, find that quite difficult to use and complex. Um, um, but uh, but so, so I think all of that was kind of occurring around the same time. And that kind of sucked me into a bit of a rabbit hole at that point. Um, and um, really kind of from there, um, that's that's what brought me in, and I think once you start using something like Bitcoin, um, you, you then find us you know that associated comes with that um, an enhanced kind of need to look after your own security and own privacy, and um, just because just at that point you're obviously managing uh, money that um, is a bearer instrument and you haven't got recourse to a bank, so you really have got to take your, ser your security um, seriously at that point. So I think that really that's that's kind of when it happened. It's nothing to do with the job or anything like that that um, that, that brought that. Uh, yeah, I think one of the the biggest revelations for me out of that Snowden stuff. I mean, I think I had somewhat known, and there have been little leaks here and there about what surveillance mm. was going on. But like you, you mentioned that you just kind of thought, like, okay, it's like it's worth it. I understand the need for it. Like they're they're making arrests, they're catching people before things happen, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I think one of the things that jumped out was that. The, that type of dragnet surveillance didn't actually lead to arrests in any large numbers and in many cases to no arrests. Oftentimes that dragnet surveillance didn't actually prevent any crimes, didn't prevent any of the kind of the large attacks. And so it was interesting to see that that dragnet surveillance was being done and the, the reasoning was, hey, we're actually making you safer. But then it wasn't actually even providing that and it was being used to actually spy on US citizens, even though it technically wasn't supposed to. And there was there was a lot that came out of that. I mean, I I feel like that was probably one of the turning yeah. points, definitely for me, and also for a lot of other people to realize maybe this this dragnet surveillance doesn't make sense. I think that was a huge thing as well for me. Um, I mean, I'd um, you know I wasn't completely unfamiliar with even the kind of the idea of whistleblowing um, on this type of uh, type of stuff anyway. Um, uh, I I actually studied history at university. Um, I actually done a lot of work on. Uh, research and counterinsurgency, um, big kind of area of interest for me was stuff like the Vietnam War, and um, so it was kind of you know a lot of my kind of original um, studies have been you know looking through things like the Pentagon Papers, um, and actually of course you know how broken some of you know how the government was operating 
uh, during the Vietnam War and how certain things were being hidden um, from the American people at that time to, you know, to do with the success of the war. Um, I think even back then, uh, you know, you've seen the kind of the dangers of some of the central planning going on and people uh, making decisions based on statistics that were, you know, were very kind of removed from people on the ground. So um, one of the things I do remember, you know, um, under that generation where 9-11 still had a pretty big impact, you know, I, I went to university in 2001 um, and, um, you know, fully expecting when I joined the army in 2005 to be going to Afghanistan for, for, for reasons that completely tied to, um, uh, to, to, to everything I, you know, I, I, I'd seen happen kind of very impressionable age at 1819 um, but I had also read the 9-11 the investigation commission and you know a big thing comes up there with actually just how overwhelmed for example US agencies were the absolute glut of information they had because of the dragnet surveillance and it was pretty clear kind of what a lazy way of getting intelligence and uh, the dragnet stuff was and it actually hindered uh, their efforts to to actually uh, to kind of, you know, to to withstand attacks and things like that because they just simply had too much information. And I think you know, I think as you get older and you you also you get a bit more jaded. But we've, I'm you know I'm sure here you know, we've all been through like the TSA type checks in airports, um, and we're seeing this now. Of course, you know, yeah, I don't want to go into too much detail on this, but we've seen this, of course, with um, um, probably what you'll have seen with some of the kind of the enforcement of COVID restrictions, but you're starting to see kind of a lot more of these kind of arbitrary rules put in place, regardless of what you think about threat of international terrorism, regardless of what you th th think about the threat of the pandemic. Um, it's quite obvious that some of these things that kind of infringe upon your rights and actually just interrupt your day to day um, often and fall into kind of quite a heavy amount of inconvenience and have you know, second order effects that you um, uh, that, that you, you that you see that may not be the original intention of the people that have put in the legislation in the first place but happen anyway um, and I think that's become kind of a you know a lot clearer over the last few years to me and it's you know, been a big reason why I've kind of you know, sought greater privacy on my online life and 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 championed it and you know supported and used that that kind of software. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely agree. Um, and I'm curious, is, is there any kind of common myth that you've seen people believe about personal privacy, something that you've run into? Um, <clears throat> I think there's, uh, yeah, I, th I think the biggest kind of myth is is that, um, um, I think this is quite a common one, though. I, I think it's the fact that people think that you actually can't stop yourself being listened in on um, by the government. Um, you know, the people... You know, the, the, you know, people have been have been used to hearing of all the successes of of the government um, agency types and screw ups by criminals and yeah, you know, whistleblowers, for example, um, uh, where they have been caught. You know, we are all aware of uh, spies, for example, that are, you know, obviously very kind of best in their trade potentially, and they still get caught. And that this is all out of reach for the ordinary person to do. And I think that that leads to a bit of defeatism in a lot of people. Um, they've already made that um, kind of Faustian bargain that if they're going to have a, an electronic device, that's it. They need to give up everything anyway because the large corporations, the government's going to be able to listen into everything you have. So I think that's kind of a, a big myth. And the reason I think it's a big myth is just because your privacy and your security are, are all on a scale. Um, so, um, you know, Encryption, as Snowden said, works. Um, if you use something like a GP, GPG um, to, to compose a message to someone else, I 
think you can be very, very you know, sure that no one's going to know the contents of that message. Um, I think if you've obviously got someone targeting you um, and they've invested time and money, you know, other resources into specifically um, listening in on you area, sure, that's going to be um, far less likely that you're going to be able to uh, stop yourself being listened in on. But the, you know, the forces out there, criminal, government, whatever they are, they're not omnipresent, but yeah, omnipresent, they're not everywhere. And um, a just a few small steps often are all it needs to do for you to dramatically increase um, your security and your privacy. And um, it, that's well within the reach of ordinary people. So um, it, it doesn't need to be, be using any technology that's particularly uh, different, um, uh, that's, that's, you know, that puts you well outside um, uh, the space of other people. You don't need to be a hermit. You, 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 know, you, you can use fairly, fairly ordinary tech. It's just about understanding, understanding your threat model, although I don't particularly like using that term when I speak to just ordinary folk, um, but but it really is about that. You know, what are you concerned about? You know, what what things to you are important um, from a privacy perspective that you don't want people to know about? And if you think of it from those kind of first principles, it becomes very easy to 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 think about you know what you need to do to to protect against. And also, I think uh, um, to think about when you interact with services and people is not to just because it's a, a nice website that may be presented well not to abstract that away from the fact that it is being operated by fallible people and that uh, when you do sign up to a service that means that your data is sitting on someone else's computer and that someone else is using it just to appreciate that when you go and interact with other people and other services um, so i think you know that's really the biggest myth is is that people feel that they need to give up before they can get started and that there's no point really even doing some of this and that, you know, that really becomes very obvious is wrong is when you start looking into some of the mitigations that you can that you can do. Yeah, I think that's it's a really good point about the the idea of a threat model. Like you said, that that phrase can be kind of daunting or scary or not helpful yeah. for normal people. Um, yeah. But I think even just bringing it down into two kind of simple camps. One being you want to avoid dragnet, government and corporate surveillance, and you want to avoid data breaches causing you to have personal information leaked. And I think that's the one that most people will fall into. And that's where the the kind of low-hanging fruit, the not super advanced techniques are the things that are going to protect you from that. Things like using encrypted messengers, using a VPN, using maybe Tor browser, stuff like that is going to protect you from those general surveillance techniques. And like you said, if, if your threat model is that you're worried that a government or nation state is going to be targeting you specifically for surveillance that is a whole nother ball game but almost no one needs to worry about that most people fall into that that first camp of hey i just want to make sure my government's not watching everything i do i want to make sure that corporations aren't seeing everything i do and correlating that between corporations and then i want to make sure that the companies that i give my data to when they're breached because almost always they're going to get breached at some point my personal information isn't going to leak or at least as little as possible is going to leak uh, absolutely, and I think the I think you know one of those kind of analogies that gets used um, often is um, um, imagine just locking your door, for example, um, and um, your um, uh, the door in your house being locked compared to your neighbours, and therefore anyone that is looking to 
steal from you or grab your information or whatever it is or target they'll possibly leave you alone because there's an easier target next door and i think although that's why that's helpful um to explain um the reasons why you might you know, use a better messenger or um uh you know use proper password and a password manager and all those things that get spoken about. Um, I think the I think the largest problem people have is is that they're not aware of, of how the internet works. And I think that's a tough one to 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 get across. And I think you know that you know, one of the things that of course with these tools is that they're not just offering a, a single a single function. So for example, you know a key in a door is pretty easy for most people to understand. Um, you, yeah, it, you have to put time and noise if you're going to go get round that key in the door, potentially some physical force as well. So people are very clear that a key locks a door, it stops getting someone inside. And with something like, say, your Tor browser, um, it, there's a lot going on there. You, you know, the something like a Tor browser um, will obviously be um, obfuscating um, your, your origination um, your IP, for example, from a website that you go to because it's going through the Tor network. Um, it's also going to have some security features. Uh, you know, it may not run JavaScript on the browser. Um, um, it would also have potentially other other privacy aspects, which aside from kind of your network privacy of the IP, but it may um, uh, you know, not make it so likely that there'd be a bookmark, sorry, an extension or something like that on the browser that could be giving away information to a service that you access. So these tools are complex for people, and therefore, you know, if they do see something like or use something like a Tor browser, um, uh, they may know that it's providing some security, um, a degree of privacy, or whatever, but they might not know exactly how that relates to what they're doing on the internet because it isn't clear for a lot of people uh, that you know, there's transport layer security going between your device and the server that you're going to. It isn't clear necessarily how an IP, you know, a, a domain name that you enter is resolved to an IP address and that takes you to, you know, that gets you to the server to get information from. Um, it isn't clear to people that, um, uh, that, that you know, when you are downloading information um, from another site, that maybe an internet service provider that you signed all that information over to when when you actually um, bought that service as a customer in your own country to your house, and um, that they're actually able to spy and to what degree on on the on the um, the sites you're going to. So I think that's the big thing as well. It's just the sheer complexity, the multi levels of of just an ordinary activity on the internet these days just how much it involves so i think that's that's intimidating for people i think i think certainly out uh, even for my generation i suspect you're younger you're quite a bit younger than me um but when i grew up with the internet i didn't grow up really knowing that much in the early days you know it was a relatively mature ecosystem so i wasn't aware of all those kind of layers to it and that's required me to research and dig into it and of course most people won't do that and i think that makes it harder for them to work out how do they handle their threat model and what's going on and what they need to think about when they're looking at all this vast array of products and services that are there available for them to um to protect themselves um um, or give themselves enhanced privacy when when they're when they're doing uh, when they're on the internet. Yeah, that's something we talked about a bit in uh, the first episode of Opt Out with Henry. Is he mentioned this idea that we need to make 
these FOSS tools and these privacy preserving tools so good that people just use them because they're the better tool, not because they understand every aspect of their threat model and understand how uh, how IP addresses work and how networks work and how the protocol layer stack works and all this, all of this stuff that honestly most people aren't ever going to look at, much less understand. Um, exactly. Being able to build those tools in a way that they can approach them and use them even without understanding the details and still be gaining uh, an an impactful amount of privacy from using those. Yeah, and I think I think that's actually uh, it's it's more doable than some of us may think. Um, you know, just just as a, as another example, I mean, we we've, we've spoken about obviously nation state attacks, dragnet surveillance, and um, for a lot of people, right? That even even when you go through the Snowden type um, uh, revelations, they're still not bothered. Uh, and I think yeah, I, I think where where people are waking up a bit more to the idea of privacy is, I think, you know, the early experience for a lot of people with Facebook uh, is a pretty significant one. Uh, and I think one reason I kind of suggest say that is, is that um, certainly kind of people of my generation, um, Facebook was something that just kind of essentially launched around the time of university or, or within a few years afterwards. So we didn't all think about the effects of sharing all your information and putting it out there. Um, but I think for a lot of people, um, we've experienced the downsides of sharing that kind of information on services such as Facebook. And I, you know, I don't even mean particularly information shared with Facebook themselves. But if you spend you know, several years um, uploading holiday photos and all that, uh, you do experience certain types of people snooping through your data in a way that you don't want. Um, people are also aware that if they, for example, remarry or get another girlfriend or boyfriend, um, that they have got a, got quite a large digital footprint of the ex or something like that on, on, on social media. And that in itself becomes a liability. It becomes something else to track. And I think what we have seen over the last few years is people do wake up the idea of online privacy, not so much in a way of stopping government or corporations um, going to it, but actually thinking about, well, how can I protect my privacy against my uh, from my peers? Um, and not just as in protect my privacy and stop my, you know, stop my information being listened to, but how do I manage it in a way that, um, that, that, that I actually have a bit more control over it just because from a personal perspective, I, I would feel the impacts of that that much more. It becomes hard for me to manage my life because you know, what could have just been hearsay and rumor is now here, logged, electronically stored, and available for anyone to kind of trawl through as they wish. So I think that's, I think with we, kind of that point from Henry's made is, is that products and services that compete on a on a way of sensibly allowing people to manage their privacy do have a good good chance of of, uh, of being successful just because they are actually um, offering a valuable service and they can give a better user experience just because yeah, they are respecting that thing and it's natural to care about you know, closing the bathroom door, closing curtains to your bedroom. We do have things that we don't need to or want to share with, with everyone. So privacy does need to be built into your services. And hopefully the kind of increased flood I feel like is happening right now of a focus oh. on privacy, even among large corporations, but also just people like tech lore, people like Catan from last week, uh, myself putting out this podcast, just all of the educational content that's being put out. I'm, I'm really hopeful that a lot of this is getting and filtering down to people who haven't thought deeply about it 
and they just kind of get a wake up call to say like, Hey, maybe I should care about this. And maybe I should start taking, taking care of some low hanging fruit that I can, that I can knock out to achieve some, some better level of privacy. Um, and Absolutely. just, a, yeah, uh, just a quick question of left field, but just kind of curious, uh, what's something you feel like almost no one agrees with you on? Oh, um, I think on that one, um, I, I think the, the closest one to that is is that is that I, I believe there's a there's a there's a there's a general kind of rule out there that people can't manage their own keys, and I know that sounds potentially a bit random, uh, uh, but uh, a lot of services are built here. You know, the the idea that the, you know, managing passwords that someone always does need a way to reset an account. Um, and that people can't necessarily store a password correctly, and that can't the kind of kind of look after that technical kind of uh, uh, level of expertise is, is beyond the reach of most ordinary people. I.e., you know, you need, you need to be someone that does care, and you need to be someone that um, is technically proficient to store them appropriately and manage that. I, and, and and also that we necessarily need it to be mainstream that um, services are out there to provide a lot of that security for you. And the reason I say that is just that. You know, you know, yeah, we can look on a daily basis and see some proper, you know, real stupidity from from humanity. Um, but, you know, I, I, you know, I do understand that and know that. But at the same time, it is amazing what uh, even even what the absolute less than average of intelligent person can can achieve. And I think kind of a really good example of that is look at how many people go out and get a driving license. And um, we operate something as complex as a as a vehicle. For most people on a day-to-day -day basis and and do that and we everyone has to pass pretty much in the world has to pass some form of test and um, have to manage kind of quite dangerous piece of equipment uh, if it's used incorrectly so i think that it's just essentially it just needs people to care you know and it um, and it needs to be kind of part of the culture but if you turn that aspect on its head that people can manage their own information and you know of course that ties to something like cryptocurrency as well um, the consequences that are kind of far more far-reaching. The idea of a custodian um, for your data or for your money suddenly becomes a lot less of a prominent piece of people's lives um, than it does now. And I think I believe that is something that, if the right tools are available, if the right um, right right things happen globally, kind of you know, culturally, and all that, then that kind of switch can happen. Because sure. We are very used to the idea of people not taking personal responsibility for things, especially in a in the welfare type states that we live in. But people can take responsibility if they're allowed to, and if there aren't, there isn't something unnaturally um, manipulating the incentive. Otherwise, it's it's a very core part of an individual um, to be able to hoard something for themselves. You know, you know squirrel will bury its nuts. You know, it it's not an advanced thing to be able to plan the future to take some personal responsibility and, and to uh, and to do those kind of things and I, I think that we we do baby people and baby our users substantially in our expectations and actually all it is is it's a mindset change yeah and corporations have been more than happy to fill that to fill that role i think that's something that as we've exactly. moved further and further into the digital age They've loved the chance to be able to be full custodians of everything. I mean, <laughs> everything, passwords, really? photos, every status update, every location, 
everything that you do, you're trusting with them. And there are definitely benefits. I mean, the, the biggest one is you don't have to worry about losing it because some central party is hanging on to it for you, as, assuming they still decide that you're worthy of an account or worthy of having that mm -hmm. data. Obviously, you could get kicked out at any time, but um, there is that big upside. But I, I think once you realize what you can do on your own, like you mentioned, it, it seems complex at first. When you actually dig into it, it's really not that crazy. And there are Again, are people putting out good content? There are lots of great tools, and it's it's something that once you once you kind of fall down that rabbit hole, it just it it leads you to so many other things because it can start out with something as simple as switching to a password manager instead of uh, like switching to something like KeePass instead of uh, leaving all your passwords in in your browser sync, something like that. Absolutely, I, mean, I think you kind of also you just come into an interesting point here as well in which you talk about the kind of the whole deplatforming and I think that's the other thing that is becoming a big aspect to all this focus on security and privacy is is that often you know when you first look at this it is the default right that you sign up to certain services and then you look at a way you know we are social beings you look at a way to interact with others that, um, that preserves your privacy preserves me security when you're doing so what we are seeing a lot more I think now is because these are such a you know, huge tools in our lives uh, you know whether it's video conferencing whether it's you know, sharing media and all that and uh, the, the the idea of being kicked off a platform is is that much more likely these days and you know i know kind of ketan would have covered this on and um, a big part in in the episode as well it's something kind of me and him speak about kind of quite a lot but but i think you know getting an expert you know a level of expertise and um, in your in your privacy and in the security does help you of course if you are going to start hosting some of this yourself and and be you know, properly tailored privacy and security um, practices actually helps you with your censorship resistance and your ability to withstand being t-platformed because it stops you oversharing information for example that you may not be willing to or you, you may not realize you wanted to and it puts companies, of course, at less liability um, if they've not got you know, necessarily information that incriminates you or causes you problems. Uh, so, uh, you know, these were all kind of heavily related. And um, I, I think you know, that's another you know, part, obviously, we'll get into when we speak, speak more about the kind of phones, is that it's not just about security and privacy. It's also about producing that need to have an account with someone. Um, and I think that's a kind of, that has certainly in the last year, something I've kind of noticed is, is, is much more a driving requirement for customers as well. Yes, yeah, so let's, let's get into that a little bit more. Um, what are some of the tools you use regularly to opt out that you'd recommend others to take a look at and, and why? Um, sure. So um, I think kind of, um, I think kind of, you know, the, the basic ones would be like, uh, you know, in, in, in encrypted messengers. Um, uh, I think, you know, thankfully, like it's kind of far more of a default thing now. Um, you know, WhatsApp um, adding end-to-end -end encryption there um, is kind of far more normalized that. So I think Telegram, um, even if it was end-to-end -end encryption initially, you know, uh, for all chats, um, certainly kind of pioneered for a, for instant messenger. Uh, the, uh, you yeah, the, the use for, for, the, for that encryption for, for people. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, those kind of chats. I, I'm a bit, I'm a big user of Threema. Um, um, I've kind of, you know, obviously you've got to kind of handle the network effect um, substantially here. Um, uh, so, it, so it's not always easy to do. Um, but really, anything that kind of gives me a default uh, level of privacy in terms of you know encrypting my data from the provider, 
do use um, emails such as ProtonMail. Um, and I've you know actually been for a while now hosting my own Nextcloud instance, um, which you know doesn't necessarily encrypt everything, or you know it's a bit more experimental that support there, but at least stops me um, putting my data, I suppose, in a very structured way for for a company like Google or uh, Microsoft, for example, to do a structured analysis on and, and pick up data. And I tend to put on data that is encrypted onto something like Nextcloud. So it's something that I can self-host. I have under control of my own domain name. Um, and um, it's something, of course, that's backed up. So if I lose devices or whatever, it enables me to, to use tools without being at the invitation um, of someone else. Um, and obviously, you know, in terms of on the cryptocurrency side, things I speak about a lot, but I, you know, I use Bitcoin and Monero wallets, um, and they enable me to, to do transactions, of course, that, that don't require permission. So it's kind of a huge part of, um, of, uh, of my life now. Um, and um, it does give you a huge amount of, uh, of power and benefit, right? That, you know, your savings and your ability to transact aren't always at the whims of, um, of third-party control. Um, I'd be a big user of ad blockers on uh, my internet browsers. And, you know, I have to say, I, I, I really don't get bombarded with, with many adverts or anything. Um, and, uh, you know, for me, that's a big part of opting out as well, is this that I think a lot of the information uh, that people are consuming at the moment is... Um, it, 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 is a result of a lot of nudges uh, from corporates, from governments, etc., and that it affects your ability to to kind of research and arrive at those conclusions yourself independently. So for, for me, that's a that's a big part there. Um, and from social media, I, you know, don't do a huge amount, but I started using Matrix a little more, uh, you know, federated mess messenger there, and um, the, you know, the, the associations I have have been willing to do things like hosting things like a matrix server or something like that so you can go out and socialize with someone on that without the same kind of fear of that room being sick you know breaking a policy of some sort for you know for, for whatever is being discussed and then being shut down so i think that's kind of a, a very powerful um uh, connection to kind of make there Awesome. I'm I'm surprised you didn't mention uh, Calyx OS or any kind of mobile OS there, but so, I, I definitely yeah, have thoughts so, around we'll that. that. Um, yeah, the um, so, so the, the funny thing is, right, is is that I think the mobile OS aspect is an interesting one because it sits so much behind all of this, like still the the applications of what you tend to see on a day to day basis. And I think the other thing as well is is that you know even the browsers I use now are kind of are different to what I already used before. I mean, um, I'm, I'm using Pop OS more on a day-to-day -day basis now, um, um, and that's kind of got the, the uh, benefit of a of a of a, an actual uh, separately run store. So of course you can still go to um, to a website or a repository and install software you want, but it does also make things like ungoogled Chromium super easy to 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 run and install. I think that's kind of a huge thing, and in an ideal way your operating system and your browser, of course, there's a bit of crossover on those two anyway. Um, in an ideal way for me, you shouldn't even really notice them that much. Um, they shouldn't kind of be at the forefront because they should just be essentially a window for you to run applications on. So, I mean, it's actually never at the forefront of my mind, something like Calyx or Pop, because I just don't tend to see it too much. And I think one of the things I realize is if I ever do use another OS, such as a Windows or even Mac and unfortunately even iOS more so these days, is that the OS does get increasingly 
in your face when you're using it. There are things that pop up and force you into stuff that you may not want to do and you find yourself being increasingly restricted by. Um, so yeah, it's, um, it, it's never first on my mind, funnily enough. <laughs> Around that, that topic of you're talking about iOS and, and macOS there, how would you say something like Calyx OS compares to iOS for privacy and security? I know uh, iOS is kind of generally touted as being private and secure, and there's very conflicting uh, kind of stances on it, but generally it's kind of widely viewed as a, an okay option. Um, so I'm curious if you have any thoughts around kind of iOS versus Calyx OS or other FOSS Android versions. Yeah, uh, so it's, there's actually this is actually kind of a really kind of huge um, a piece and I think it intimidates a lot of people um, but I think this is probably the, the most useful thing we will probably end up discussing here today and um, because it's it's a subject that for a lot of people is is most difficult to get hold of and um, I think for a few reasons is is that just by its nature a phone tends to be a more expensive piece of equipment so people don't always have the luxury of trying out a whole number of different phones and operating systems and um, they're, you know, they're very personal devices once you are set up and running and um, there's a um, uh, you kind of kept to it, right? So um, I kind of forget the best kind of term to use there, but um, it, you know, there's a there's a friction to to migrating between devices unless you're uh, particularly uh, ruthless with your own information and your ability to move between the two. So I think for a lot of people, um, there's an there's an inhibition from just experimenting with another OS. Um, especially on mobile, where you are baked into a bit of an ecosystem, and so. I think one of the things that's happened in the last few years is, is that I've really forced myself to use multiple OSs. Um, and actually, I think like you, for years before getting started with um, Calyx and Copperhead and all that, um, I was a big iOS user. And the reason I was was because, um, one, I, I respected the, the, security, the security and privacy guarantees, and I think they were always pretty good. Um, uh, but also, I, I, I like to see this experience. Um, 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 I promise you, um, although some people always doubt this, it was nothing to do with the prestige or the, uh, <laughs> you know, the, uh, the, the, w the wish to kind of be seen with a fancy Apple device or anything like that. You don't really have Apple stickers, stickers all over the back of your car or anything no, like I that? No, I never had that. I actually, I, I found the, uh, I found the, I found the, uh, the conferences pretty cringe. I never really liked the, the culture around it. Uh, I just, I just like stuff reliable and to work. So that was a big reason for me using the, you know, for being being involved in their ecosystem and I mean they have a reputation for expensive products but actually when you do look at it for example on the Android side not the kind of what was kind of known as like an, an ultrabook type laptop you're actually looking at similar prices I think to, to those products anyway but anyway back to your question about how, how the two compare and um, I think it's kind of oh, there's so much to separate so for a start when you're when you're comparing iOS and Android and um, iOS is a far tighter ecosystem. You know, devices are, uh, are less disparate. You've obviously got one manufacturer there, Apple, uh, largely. Obviously, they're subcontracted, obviously, amongst kind of other companies there. Um, you know, uh, but um, Android's got far more kind of open. You know, you've got large companies like Samsung, um, uh, Motorola, those types. Um, so you've got big difference in the actual available hardware. So it's easy, always easy to say that something like an iOS device is, is more secure, especially if you're fitting it into a bite-sized article, uh, because it's very hard to, to write an article and have all these exceptions. Yeah, sure, Android's great if you use the very good device, but of course, a lot of people aren't using devices, and when security incidents happen, it can often be 
other devices that aren't some of the necessary the, the, the higher end that are being exploited. The other thing, of course, is because it's a far smaller range, iOS is pushing out updates um, and security updates, and, and um, uh, those devices are getting them and they're upgrading that as much sooner. Whereas Android is very much kept the individual um, original equipment manufacturers to do so. So I think there's a, a huge variation there. But I think kind of in uh, from kind of our perspective is, can you get that same level of security and privacy with an Android device as you can with an iPhone or another iOS device? For me, it's becoming clearer and clearer. Uh, really, since the, uh, the, the probably about the Pixel Three and the uh, the 3a, uh, you you now can, and that's been the case for kind of quite a few years. And the the, the Nexus line of devices, then followed by the Pixels, are devices that Google's got control over. And that Android is being tightly built towards um, the, the, the the flagship devices, the ones that do get quick updates. So they are not the same as the other devices that you're seeing um, uh, in the Android ecosystem. Um, also, Android itself over the last few years um, has had an increased focus um, on security and privacy. You know, now on something like Android 11, or I think it's actually from Android 10, you've got individual. Uh, uh, toggles and um, controls over what 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 apps will have access to your location, to your microphone, and all that. The, those that power is within the software, and that all plays right into an overall assessment of um, how secure a private device is. And those 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 things have to be included when you compare those. So, I mean, the other thing that happens is is that you've got something like you. Know, uh, iOS had a big thing with secure enclave and including a secure chip. I think that came out around the time of iOS 5, but don't quote me on that. Um, and then with the Google, they they um, with the Google they they, included, they built the Titan M chip, and you've now got in a flagship device such as a Pixel, unlike even the Nexus, although there were some um, there were some um, not so much a secure chip, but there were there were other aspects of the model there, and you did have you 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 now got the kind of the benefit of the, your, your actual password being stored in a specific secure chip. You've got the ability to withstand brute forcing attacks, i.e., you know, people you know, getting your password or running software on a, you know, uh, on a device like a kind of Celebrite device. You've got lots of mitigations now on like the kind of more modern pixels, um, like you have with an iOS device that stop at rest your device being broken into. So I think kind of on those levels, without going into too much detail, your top of the line. Pixel, or actually even your, not top of the line Pixel, but your Pixel being a top of the line Android device gives you a physical security um, perspective, very similar security to something like an iOS device. Now there's obviously small differences within um, the actual Android software has different degrees of sandboxing um, um, you know, with, with actually the, the, the user space that the app occupies, how um, data is held in memory, all those things. But I think by and large, you're looking at a broadly equivalent kind of, you can trade blow for blows, um, like top Android with an iOS device. Um, but I think you've also got to factor in is what is user behavior with those devices? And even then with those devices, what kind of products and services do they sign up to? And obviously with something like Apple, the iCloud service is baked into that. And as we saw with, um, the celebrity hacking of photos is is that you know when you know when you've got a service such as Apple that encourages unencrypted information on their servers and a huge amount of metadata, that all affects your security and privacy. 
with something like a Google Android device, if you've got Google Play services, you've got a huge amount of data being shared there. Um, and I think that's the, you know, to kind of summarize, one of the great things about like a de-Googled Android is, is that you're getting very much the best of what Google offers, because um, they are building excellent hardware, and they are building excellent software. You're able to take out the, the Google service offering, which isn't particularly respective of your privacy, um, um, and you know, pull that out and really get the best of both worlds. And I think you know the great thing with um, with uh, the you know, these custom OSs such as Calyx, such as Graphene OS, and such as even like the Copperhead OS that I have some experience with, is is that this isn't taking an operating system and hacking it onto your device. The devices are fundamentally the you know, the pixels are designed to be able to be installed on a device like a Pixel and actually use the secure element to enforce the integrity uh, of the software on that device. And you can even do that with a third-party signing key. Um, so if, you're, you're, if you are one of the Calyx developers, um, you will actually sign software. You're trusted and the chip will be used in that. And that's incredibly powerful because now you've got something that gives you similar control, um, so it's like an iPhone device, but you're not just dependent on Apple to be able to do that. And I think that's, you know, really like um, you know, the big thing, and that was a, a, a big that was a big pull for me to move away from iOS was when I realised that with the latest devices and the type of software, that combination was bringing me to something I was used to getting with iOS, but without the dependency of Apple. Yeah, I think that's something that has become so much better with the release of Graphene OS, Copperhead OS, Calyx OS. And the, the concepts behind those is I've, the trade-off used to be kind of, do you want the security and reasonable privacy of iOS or do you want the control and flexibility of Android while sacrificing security and sometimes sacrificing privacy? There's a lot of nuance there depending again on the vendor of the phone since they customize the OS. But um, absolutely, yeah. You, you could also flash something like Lineage or like CyanogenMod way back in the day, but then you greatly sacrifice security and there were a lot of issues around that, but with, with these types of OSs, you're able to not only verify that it's it's actually what you want to be running, but you still have that ability to to be flexible in the services that you use, to be flexible in the tools that you use, uh, to easily connect to self-hosted things and change defaults. And it gives you that flexibility, but without sacrificing the security in most situations. Obviously, there's, there's a lot of nuance, and you did a great job of covering the majority of that nuance. But um, I think that's the the important thing for me is you can finally opt out of the walled garden of Apple and not sacrifice at least in a in a big way the the privacy that or the security that comes with that um, and in almost all cases you can get even better privacy now as well so that's that's why it's a really important step forward for me and I've I've loved that experience so far. Absolutely. I mean, the thing with um, the Lineage devices as well is like the Lineage OS developers have you know, done some really incredible work. And you know, a lot of that, those apps you actually see included in stuff like Calyx OS now and, um, and Copperhead as well. Less on Graphene just because it's a far kind of tighter and smaller um, app ecosystem by default that goes on to that device. Um, but, you know, the, the, a lot of people that are experimenting with something like Lineage um, will actually be doing it on devices that don't give you that ability to flash the device in a way that unlocks locks the bootloader and uses the secure element of the device um, to enforce that. So, you know, whilst some people, you know, they actually may be fine having a, a relatively insecure phone 
physically because maybe they just you know they don't actually take the phone with them out and for some people especially if you're say in a city in a coffee shop or you're worried about theft um, you might not be worried on a day-to-day -day basis of your device being stolen and being exploited but of course if that ha all that needs to do is happen once and then someone's got a device that potentially opens up to your entire digital life and more and, and I think that's a really for me that was always a big um, it was just a big inhibitor for me to ever experiment with doing things like custom ROMs on an Android device. It had no interest because why would I want to experiment with all that if I was going to potentially really open myself up to a lot of security problems? Um, I think that that was the kind of that's that's a really big thing um, with Pixel devices and you know, with with what they offer. That's incredibly empowering. Yeah, for sure. Um, and we've we've talked a, a bit about Graphene OS, Copperhead OS, and, and Calyx, but um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the drama that's gone on in the, yeah, the yeah. privacy OS ecosystem. I've, I've just watched you go through it. Obviously, you were working with Copperhead OS in the past and just really respected your approach. You know, they feel like you were very slow to pass judgment and um, very cautious in, in how you handle things. And I, I really respected that. Um, and I, I just wondered if there were some key takeaways that you had for listeners and for me, honestly, um, on how pro-privacy and FOSS communities can better handle these types of conflicts. Um, okay, well, firstly, thank you. Uh, it's very kind of you to say that, especially as um, when I, certainly when I look back on some of my communication, I do sometimes think, my God, I lost my temper there. Um, so, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I don't think I've, I've always handled things the best way. Um, but I mean, in terms of um, uh, like how to handle kind of all these conflicts uh, and all that is, is that I think, I think the, the biggest part here is actually empathy. Um, uh, and you've got to look at kind of what, what everyone's trying to achieve. Uh, and also, I think you also got to think about, like, um, yeah, especially if you're involved in any kind of drama, especially online, um, you've got to think about what someone else is going through when you're discussing with them. I think, you know, certainly in the last year or so, uh, we can also think of some of the mental health issues some people may have had uh, just because of some of the experience of, um, of, of the government reaction to the pandemic and all that. So you've got to, you've got to take a deep breath sometimes with some of this. Um, but, but when you are kind of arguing with someone online and some of this stuff, I think one of the most important things is to have a, um, to actually agree on the definitions of certain things. And that may sound like super obvious, but some people will speak about a, you know, about something and, and when you are having an argument make sure you're at least starting from the point of agreeing what certain terms mean before you're discussing other stuff um, and I think that always puts you into a good position to at least get the most value out of any discussion that you have um, so I, I think that's the thing I, I think the other thing as well is is that um, you've got to try these things fundamentally yourself anyway um, to really get a good idea of, of what this is all about um, you're not going to be able to uh, to to fully understand um, the nuances of all this by just picking stuff up from an internet argument or seeing what's on a YouTube video or what someone said, and you do, you do need to test some of this yourself and go through. You've got to, you know, what what people see as their threat models could be super different to what you do. And um, now, for someone like I think it's very interesting, something like graphene, it is actually fundamentally a science project, um, and I don't mean that in a bad way, um, but. Um, for some people, right, they just want to see, I want the most secure phone, I want a really good phone. And it may be that something like graphene is really good for that purpose. But if you're not going to necessarily use it because the, um, the trade-offs are too much on a day-to-day -day basis for you to use, then maybe that's not really the best device for you. 
And I, I, I see I see that a lot. Uh, you know, people don't necessarily think that just because on paper a certain device um, can do can achieve certain things necessarily means that that's necessarily going to translate into how they're going to use it. Uh, I think here, if, if you are using a device which is really kind of engineered for maximizing security, um, you, I, think, I think you owe it to yourself as well to also, you know, going back to what we discussed before with all the apps, you need to think about very carefully what software you run on that. And if you are the kind of person that's not going to give up um, um, opening attachments on an email, uh, you're not going to give up uh, uh, running maybe uh, software for companies like Facebook and and um, uh, Microsoft. Then, really, how much is it benefiting you to to use a device that massively locks down um, uh, you, uh, uh, the, the the OS and and uh, and systems there for your protection? If you just go ahead and do it anyway, and you you, you bypass a lot of the um, the, the, the protections in place and a, and a good example of that is something like graphene for example won't won't even come with f-droid i think the last time i used it so it does actually demand a, a higher amount of awareness on the user that they've got to go out and if they are going to install any more apps they've actually got to be at least from the get-go go out go onto a browser which in itself is a risk find a, an apk like the, you know, the, the, the the type of download file for android install that actually verify that that app is valid before they start actually you know, downloading a whole bunch of other apps. And I, I find that kind of quite amusing aspect to graphene because it's pretty much impossible to use graphene privately and securely on its own as it comes. I mean, there's no encrypted messenger that comes by default onto the phone. So actually from the get-go, you've got to go out and you've got to know what you're doing with installing that. Funnily enough, with Calyx, although um, there is arguably and I, you know, I'm not 100% sure there's arguably less security built into the operating system in terms of hardening the memory and the access that applications have to one another. Um, you've actually got privacy and security defaults out of the box right from the get-go before when you actually have the software installed. You've already got the F-Droid uh, repo on the phone. You even got the Aurora Droid, uh, sorry, the Aurora store, which enables you to get um, uh, apps from the Play Store without requiring an account. You've got um, a VPN already installed. You've already got actually a lot that means that you're not on your own when you're out there navigating for the first time and set up an operating system uh, to actually to, to to actually start using the device in anger and actually being able to to do what you need to do. And I think that's also incredibly important because a big part of security, privacy, and censorship resistance is what an operating system actually empowers you to do by default um, and how it encourages you to, you know, with, the, with its UX, to actually not make mistakes. Yeah, it's a great, a great breakdown of the comparisons there. Um, and this is something I know you've written a, written a blog post about it and we've chatted quite a bit in some smaller groups indirectly, but um, a listener wanted to know, Techler specifically, why the transition for Mamushi from Copperhead to Calyx? Um, so I think the first thing is, before I answer that question, I've got to say why I did Copperhead in the first place. And like at a very high level, a lot of this, a lot of the kind of the interest and fascination with alternative ROMs on Android came from my reluctance to have anything to do with Google on my device. Um, it just was, it was honestly a no-go for me. Um, 
and it was a huge frustration that certainly in the kind of the cryptocurrency space the, the better apps you know something like kind of samurai came out there were, um and for, on, for monero you know the, the, there were there was a monero wallet on android long before ios because so i actually feel it it made my whole um use of cryptocurrency um uh more, uh, you know, I, I was behind because I was on a more restrictive um, operating system. But it was never, I never, I wanted to use Android because I just disliked the Google so much. And um, so, when there was the opportunity to use an alternative OS, um, uh, I, I, I did use. Um, uh, I, you know, it was being discussed, and Graphene was the popular one um, to be used because it was the only one that was really like available and known as a secure and private one. And it was really another samurai user that had actually um, highlighted me to it. And amongst ourselves, we had kind of used it in the first place. And you know, kind of long story short, like we tried to reach out to Daniel McKay and the Graphene Project to try and give him some support and donations. And I won't pretend this was entirely altruistic on my part. I was also hoping that you know, if you actually like like you do in the in the Bitcoin space and the Monero space, is that if you actually develop a relationship with the people that are building these tools, um, you actually can have a part to play as well as a user raising issues. You know, there's often a two way dialogue that comes through. Certainly, I feel that uh, when I've used Bitcoin software, and I've used a huge amount from mobile software to desktop software, I've been able to raise bugs, issues, feature requests, and all of those happen. And one of the great things about this space, right, is being able to actually um, get involved and and even as a non developer have your wishes and your you know obviously it's up to the developers themselves to build but you could you have a role to play in providing some of that information and i think that mckay's um attitude towards that um you know obviously people can go to the blog post to see the real details is is that we were all rebuffed very extensively it's clear you know he's he, he wasn't interested in 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 it having anything to do with us, um, partly because of um, we'd actually even entertained having discussions with his former partner, uh, James Donaldson at Copperhead, where they'd broken up. So they he was just fundamentally not someone that we could even discuss or work with or do. And I wanted, there were very important things I wanted to see on Android and that I felt needed to be there. I felt that having used Graphene, um, that there needed to be better support for um, for applications, for example, that uh, that were dependent on Google uh, dependencies um, in the Play Store um, that actually kind of couldn't be run. I had a huge frustration that things like uh, backup software didn't work properly on on non Google Android, and even the Google Android were all very dependent on losing privacy and security. There, I wanted something kind of closer to iOS on being able to back up your software to another device. It's important for me from a business and a personal perspective. Um, you know, having that ownership of data um, and there were a few, a few other things as well that I wanted to kind of see developed in Android from a, from a censorship resistant perspective uh, there are certain stealth features that have been known in Samurai Wallet that Google policies for example had stopped being implemented so the reason we the reason I actually got involved with Copperhead was because I thought that that company offered a way for if I could market for them um, in a way of certain devices I could one get devices that were, you know, the people that were in hit, you know, that were reluctant to use something that was associated with Google into their hands, but also start bringing money for a company and make it more normalized, so we could actually then start getting real paid-for resources to actually work on some of those products. And really, like 
the kind of complete disappointment um, over of course, several months of Cophead being not really having the best um, uh, uh, software development lifecycle, um, actually not really releasing features uh, that we'd asked for, uh, like just really making zero progress. And the features that were released, it was becoming clearer to me they were actually just taken from other open source projects, made me realize is that we weren't really getting much out of that. Um, and I certainly wasn't feeling that customers were beginning to get value for money with the extra cost that they were paying for an operating system uh, when there was no discernible difference to what they could actually be getting at from using free and open source software. I also hoped that I could actually influence Copperhead themselves, given that they were previously open source, into actually going and adopting a different license to uh, what Graphene were doing but still an open source license that they could work with from a business perspective, as I would fundamentally believe that was very possible. And the complete reluctance um, and head in the sand attitude from those guys kind of showed that that wasn't um, the case, that, that they weren't going to do it. I think it all came to a head in where I was able to secure, or close to securing a corporate deal, and the way I was being, I, I'd been treated by a the head, and the dishonesty of which I documented on the blog post, meant that for me that was the kind of the final nail in the coffin with that relationship we hadn't been getting value for money i felt as a as a, as a reseller and my customers weren't um, and also dealing with someone that i felt fundamentally couldn't be trusted in business um, kind of really ended that um, i think the other thing that made it possible to actually move from copperhead to uh, another operating system was also your involvement which was one of my customers through their own exploration, from seeing some of the drama that had been discussed, actually you know, adopting an operating system that hadn't had a large, um, um, meet, you know, hadn't really had any kind of media attention to it, and realizing that, wow, this software is actually super usable. Um, digging into some of the security claims um, from, the, uh, from the graphene, the Copperhead projects, and, and realizing that actually, that yeah, sure, that they do have a security focus, but actually, even a regular Android Pixel has out-of-the-box security and privacy enhancements anyway. And a lot of that is available in ordinary Android open source project. So if you've got another project that's actually focused on usability, you know, uh, having a good UI, including software that makes notifications possible, supports more apps without actually having to surrender still to Google, but still comes out with pretty much for your ordinary user and actually even for quite um, security and privacy conscious users, then you've now got like a winning product. And, and for me also, it was the fact that it was reliable. Um, I've been told by Copperhead that, you know, really, oh, you know, you, it's very difficult to support as a reseller customers using Android from just an open source project because it's not a company, you know, it's not, they're not, you know, they're not, you know, they're not full-time employees. But actually what I discovered from, from using Calyx along with, you know, with friends uh, and former customers um, uh, from Mamushi, is that what we discovered was that the software was more bug-free on Calyx OS than it was on Graphene and Copperhead. Um, overall, it was a smooth user experience. And also because of myself and the other guys that uh, work with me on Mamushi, we were actually very, very capable of supporting users using that software. Any problems that they had, it was easy to actually support because the OS was stable, the kind of the problems that people get into just from you know, literally years of supporting 
power users in Android you know, amongst, like, say, the Samurai community, for example, had meant that we'd pretty much seen everything before in terms of issues that users could get. I didn't need Copperhead as a, as a company to help me support that operating system. And it was well within, and I actually felt that the users got a, an overall better experience. So certainly the, the business relationship was, a, was probably the, the kind of the final push. But this had been an overall kind of decision I'd been probably leaning towards um, over the kind of over several months as I was very carefully watching what the Copperhead team were producing in software and comparing and contrasting that with what was else was available in the market. Yeah, thanks for thanks for walking us through that. I know that was definitely a uh, a tricky time for for everyone involved, but definitely thankful for how you handled it and. Um, Good to hear a little bit more, a little bit more detail behind it and the the rational rationale there. Um, and I, one quick question that I just thought of was, wh- like, what is the person that Mamushi is targeting? So, like, who who are you envisioning as customers? Who do you think would be someone who would who would benefit from purchasing a phone through Mamushi that's pre flashed? Yeah, sure. Um, so this was this is actually a big oh, like this is a big kind of thing for me when. Just as I spit up from Copperhead, it took me a few weeks to decide exactly how I was going to pivot the store. And um, I did think very carefully about whether Mamushi was even still required, uh, to be honest. Um, and, a, and a couple of reasons for that is, is that the Calyx OS devs have actually done a really good flashing tool. And one thing I'll say for the Graphene project as well is that they have a web installer. So compared to a few years ago, um, where you used to have to use the terminal and command, you know, command line on terminal and be a bit more familiar with uh, you know, flashing phones and the difficulty there, is, is that really if you do want to flash an operating system, including Calyx, to your Pixel, it really is within the reach of a lot of people now. So I did actually wonder kind of you know, how much point is there to, to do this and you know, who are we targeting? Because if the OS is that much easier to support. Like, do we really need to do that? And I think a few things I've kind of re- you know, I realized when I kind of spoke to a lot of people about it is, is that they still actually, believe it or not, even though the flashing exercise is still a lot better, um, it's still actually out of reach for a few people. Um, and, and in what way? Like, it's not technically really difficult to flash a phone. But it does take a bit of time, and um, it's not something you're going to do on a day-to-day basis. So, um, you know, getting that familiar with it on the first time does take a bit of time. Uh, a lot of people just don't really have time or the interest to do so. Um, you know, it may take someone maybe even an hour to do. It. For me, it will probably take 15 minutes. Um, and it's a very quick process. But for someone, for say, following instructions, uh, checking the phone, getting familiar with how to you know, use buttons. Um, um, there's just a few things to do. The other thing as well is there's actually quite a number of pitfalls with flashing a phone, and this is certainly not to scare people from doing it, but if you do something like, say, flashing the wrong image to your phone, you really can brick your device and make it completely irrecoverable. So if, for example, you're one of those kind of slightly sloppy people that don't check uh, you know, whether it's a 4A in brackets 5G image or a 4A image, and then you run that against your phone, you will actually render your device a completely inoperable. Um, if you, for example, during a flashing process, unplug your USB or, you know, there's an accident there or you're using a, a, a poor USB, you can also run, end up with problems in flashing. Um, there can be driver issues. So if your main, say, operating system is Windows, um, you've got to fight the antivirus software a bit to sometimes kind of get through that. So, I mean, long story short, there's actually quite a few technical hurdles for even the average person that we 
we get past and enable by doing both with Mamushi doing that and what we have over who we target as a customer. And the other thing, of course, is, is that um, we're actually helping people acquire an actual device. Uh, and that's actually pretty important. If you're, say, in, say, the US, UK, um, or you know, um, and, and a lot of countries in Europe, that may be pretty straightforward. But if, for example, you don't really want a device IMEI associated to your name. And we also know that like in a lot of places where you buy Google Pixel phones, especially if you buy it from the Google store, you need a Google account, and they're tying that IMEI to your to your name and your number. And you, you actually may want to use Mamushi to uh, abstract your own personal purchase from your name because you can use something like Bitcoin or Monero to purchase a device. And also we've started getting customers saying in South Africa, where South Africa is not actually a market for Pixel devices, but Mamushi can input in, in, you know, can grab one of the devices we've got in the various places our guys are, and actually take a device, flash it, and send it out to you there. And then you're actually going to get really good value for money for your device. In fact, I've actually, I actually kind of saw that we're selling Pixels cheaper on Mamushi with flashed with that, with Calyx than you can actually get in some cases somewhere like South Africa uh, with, with just Google on your Pixel. Um, because of all the import duties and all that. So you know, there, there, there's a big benefit there from what we do. The other thing as well is, is that um, the kind of people we're targeting, aside from you know, people that are maybe a little less technically proficient or just haven't got the time, are people that actually want a bit of help once they get going. And um, this has actually been less required since with Calyx because Calyx is a better um, starter for, um, for an OS and Copperhead. You've got a better installation tool. You've got more out-of-the-box um, applications you can get started with but at the same time it's not unusual for me to have like customers who off the phone say look um, I'm a bit stuck with which software which would you recommend and they know that they've got an actual right to kind of get in touch with me and have me walk through with them um, you know, you know, a software to get set up with and none of that's really much skin off my nose because it's what I've been doing kind of as, as really just from a voluntary thing with helping people anyway so it's, it's been a nice way to kind of combine all that. I think lastly with Mamushi, and this is kind of, this is less about what we're doing now, but more about how things go, you know, are going forward, is that really I think that the future for Mamushi is to look at hosting um, a form of Android open source project ourselves. Um, and that's not to say that we're going to turn into full-time Android developers or anything like that, but I think one of the things that we've noticed and one of the things I kind of saw actually from my experience with Copperhead as well is, is that it's not, again, just about using secure and private software. Companies may, or certain individuals or groups of individuals, may want software that they feel that they have better control over. And if they can, say, go into a contract with a company such as ourselves where they've actually got an agreed amount of support, they can actually, um, and maybe even being tested, they've actually got, a legal counterparty um, to have a relationship with, as opposed to say someone running on a on a not for profit or open source project, that they can actually have for support. And given that the you know the people that are at Mauritius now, we're all pretty capable of doing that. And you know we've experimented with with hosting Android open source projects ourselves. One of the things that we probably look for in the future is actually helping say another company install their own flavor. Um, either of uh, you know, just core Android open source project without any of the extra stuff that Calyx do, something like that, um, and actually having 
they, you know, being able to manage their own keys and doing that software because for them maybe um, they don't want another set of developers, even an open source ones, controlling the keys to their software. Uh, and what I mean by that is is, um, is is that just because software is open source doesn't mean you're necessarily going to get always the software that you want to see on the phone. Now, I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I think it was a few years ago, there was a, an April Fool's joke, funnily enough, that um, happened. I think, I've got to be careful now, just in case I'm wrong, so big disclaimer here. I think it may have even been Lineage OS years ago. They ran some kind of, I think it was them, I think someone, it was like an, they ran an, an April Fool's joke, which I can't remember if it made the phone, like, as a joke, look like it was bricked or something like that. But whatever it was, it was super bad taste. I can't remember what it was. And it freaked out a lot of people. And if you're a company and you know, you've actually got business critical software, you can't necessarily have like open source apps. And this isn't to say obviously that Calyx guys do that. They seem to be super professional in, in how they do. But it could be something like an April Fool's joke. It could be maybe um, imagery uh, that you that, or, or certain default apps that as you know if you're you know if you're politically a certain way inclined that you that may just not be appropriate for your people or the organization you want in, you may want like another company to do that. And I think that's probably where Mimushi will, Mimushi's future lies is actually running Android open source, taking forks of um, projects, helping companies or providing that service ourselves to host that and enabling people to have a bit more ownership where they'll still have obviously a full view of the, of the code they need to will still provide like software, but they don't have to actually rely on an open source project for, for, for the hosting of that software. Thanks for that picture into kind of the future. Oh. I, I wasn't aware of that, so it's good to good to hear what some of the future plans are. Um, and one of the things you mentioned was that Mamushi accepts Bitcoin and Monero for payments. And honestly, that's one of the things that drew me to actually purchase a phone through Mamushi. Um, I don't know, it was a while ago now, six months ago. Yeah. Uh, was that I was able to pay in Monero and that throughout the checkout process and the process of actually getting the phone, y'all had very good privacy preserving practices and um, just made it clear that you handled data well, that you cared about the customer's privacy. And I, I love to see that. Um, but focusing specifically on the cryptocurrency part of that, where do you see cryptocurrency fitting in with the other tools that you've mentioned? Um, and then maybe what are some recommendations that you have around using cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Monero? Sure. So... I think I think the cryptocurrency tools fit in um, in a way that like is that if you are going through say the whole self-hosting thing, um, I would actually say as an individual, I'd really encourage people to to actually do what I've done and set up a store and actually look to accept Bitcoin and, and Monero. I really would recommend it. Um, it's you know what I did. You know, I'm not a web developer. I'm not even a developer of any sort, and it's it can be a pain at times in terms of configuration but you can be without any kind of coding skill you can set up a wordpress site um, um, and actually i had some super helpful pointers from people on twitter when i was about to lose my temper with the, the struggles of some of the early kind of wordpress uh, themes that i use um, um, I've got kind of helpful pointer we've got themes to to install to kind of make the site um, easier to kind of manage and all that and there's some great like open source um, plugins that go with the WooCommerce, which is the the billing and the um, the kind of the shopping cart aspect to a WordPress site, and that can all get baked in. It's 
I mean, this thing is, is I genuinely recommend, like, uh, you know, as a kind of online community, especially kind of, you know, in what I would call our communities, Seth, like, you know, you're far more kind of closer to the Monero community and I'm kind of closer to the Bitcoin one, is, is that I really think we should become like a nation of shopkeepers um, in, a, in a way kind of like kind of probably, you know, back 50 years ago, um, you know, like a small town in England or something. And it's something that I think we should all look to do, we should be proud of, and in an ideal way, like everyone would do. And I'm sure everyone's got something that they can kind of sell and do. And, and certainly in the early days of cryptocurrency, it used to be a big thing, you know, being able to to go to, you know, online stores and all that. But like, even if you're, if you're selling, you know, uh, stickers, if you're selling, um, uh, oh, uh, you know, hardware, um, but even groceries or anything like that, um, you can do it as a little side gig. Um, you've got to just be the first ones to do that. And there's nothing, you don't have to even set up like an international site or try and be as ambitious as I have for trying to sell phones all over the world and all the problems that come to that. But even if you offer like an ability to sell something for cryptocurrency Monero, you're kind of playing that part in, in building a circular economy. So I think that's kind of, that's a really huge part. It's a big part of you know, opting out. Um, and it doesn't need to be, especially if you're doing your part-time, you don't need to actually live off that job. It can be your way of earning cryptocurrency. And um, you know, you're actually reducing some of the analytics uh, that go against you. I mean, for a long time, we were purchasing phones uh, with Bitcoin. I was very kind of keen to continue that at the moment. Slightly separate discussion. I'm actually struggling to um, to actually acquire phones with Bitcoin, and I'm having to use fiat payment rails at the moment. Um, but that's certainly not no point to me because all those purchases I'm doing are under a legal entity of Amushi. It's a corporate business account that does that, and all those phones now in the eyes are associated with with my name uh, or my company. Um, and then the people that are getting them are still getting those uh, you know, using. Um, the cryptocurrency to help preserve their privacy um, and to uh, you know, and, and preserve the privacy from me and to uh, and, and and obviously to, to kind of you know, protect it from kind of corporate and government surveillance as well. Uh, I think you know um, in terms of recommendations, um, I, I mean I say you know, obviously plenty, but um, I think you know I, I I use obviously Samurai for my Bitcoin wallet, um, but I've also been you know I have used Cake Wallet, um, but I'm, I'm I'm using Monero Monero Joe um, an awful lot as well now. I find uh, uh, syncing a little faster at the moment, um, uh, uh, and um, um, I kind of like the cleanliness of that wallet um, in terms of you know not being not having other coins. I certainly know why. Um, Vic Sharma, uh, the guy behind Cake Wallet, has incorporated other phones. But for me personally, I'm not looking to, say, use debit cards or credit cards to acquire cryptocurrency. So I kind of like a wallet that just has um, crypto in it because I don't really need fiat purchasing methods in there. Um, and those work great on like a kind of Calyx OS or, um, or, or a standard um, Android open source project type device. Um, there's no kind of dependencies on Google Play Store. And there's other ways to install the software um, through F-Droid. Um, and they, so it makes it really easy to not be, um, to be, to, to be you know, baked into the kind of the larger Google ecosystem when you use those apps. And I, I think it's just, you know, it's great from a personal sovereignty perspective and that you can and uh, you can spend and you can you can use those tools in in conjunction with a website um, uh, uh, to manage those kind of uh, you know to quite well um, it, it's well, one, one thing I say though is is that uh, I think the other thing I learned from all this is actually um, 
that there's not been a great as good a development in the app ecosystem um, for merchants uh, in the Bitcoin space, in my opinion, as there has been for, in Monero. Um, one of the great things I think I've realized is, is that Monero is super, super good for setting up as a merchant. It really makes it easy to accept currency um, in, in a way that you don't really depend on any third party provider. So I use a WordPress plugin. I can't remember the name, but it's essentially the, the, the main uh, Monero WooCommerce one. Um, you can kind of include it, I suppose, in show notes offers. Um, but uh, you know, I can have like a, a single view key, uh, which gets hosted with a third-party block explorer, and that enables me to generate, obviously, an invoice on the site. And I give up a bit of privacy uh, to that, that, that third party block explorer to accept payments. But then every payment I get from Monero after I receive that, I then send to another wallet, um, which with a kind of combination of uh, Monero protocol benefits, you know, the ring CT, self-address is there, is, is that that helps obfuscate um, the transactional um, privacy loss from just kind of hosting my view key uh, with third party and really makes for a great trade-off where I can still validate uh, receipts of Monero through my own node um, but I can also still kind of you know, provide a fairly seamless experience on site and 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 also provide a kind of high high degree of privacy for both the customer and myself. Um, for Bitcoin, it's a bit more challenging. I use a another third-party provider, but I host a, what we call a public key or an XPub. Um, but there I have to actually, you know, I, I then take those UTXOs that I receive for the, uh, the purchases there and then I generally put all of those through Whirlpool and mix them and then you know because of the nature of bitcoin mixing and when you're doing equal input output mixing you end up with change outputs that are kind of quite difficult to uh or quite you have to be careful in managing because they can they can give away um some of the privacy those then get i always switch into monero through an exchange there um so it's become kind of a, a you know a big kind of learning experience for me to really put into practice rather than just say trading cryptocurrency is actually using it in an e-commerce environment and and using that in a way that really you know, protects customers privacy but also protects my privacy in terms of for the store um, but it also stops me should i interact with say someone else um, that i don't get my any accounts that i have shut down if i am to deal with let's like, say a third party provider um, and they look at the, say, the history, specifically in Bitcoin, of my UTXOs. Um, because you know, for some of my customers, I've had uh, I've had payments come. You know, I can check the blockchain. I've had payments come from some pretty significant clusters and um, and size of uh, of coins that, if I didn't mix them first, um, could put me on on kind of quite a high degree of um, surveillance, just in terms of. Um, my own personal activity, for example, uh, that I'd be doing. Not to say there's anything inherently suspicious, but you know how it is with certain services you operate that they, yeah, they are going to be they're going to be doing flags based on your risk profile and user behaviour. So it's been a really good way to put into practice some of the tools that I've used, and particularly those two mobile wallets and the and and the associated kind of desktop uh, use on on WordPress and putting those together has been a really good way of, of for me kind of actually putting all that into practice. And, I love that that focus. I think that's such a good such a good point to bring up that a great way to not only help drive that circular ecosystem within or that circular economy within cryptocurrency by setting up our own little shops, selling whatever you're good at or whatever you have access to physically, or I mean it can be a service, it could be anything, 
but selling that through cryptocurrency is a great way to help that circular economy grow. And like you mentioned, it, it really helps you to learn the tools as well. So it's, it's a great opportunity for you to dive in and better understand, like, how do I manage my privacy? How do I run a node? How do I integrate these things into, like you mentioned, WordPress and WooCommerce? And there's lots of other options of tools that you can use and how you can integrate. And it's a great opportunity to, to support the cryptocurrencies themselves by helping drive a circular economy while also really just forcing yourself to learn. I think that's that's one of the, the things that you gain, gain so much from is learning how to use the tools that way. And then like when you're doing education, it's a similar effect when you're writing blog posts and teaching others, Huge. you're really learning how the things actually work. You, you may think you know what you're doing, but once you actually go to try to teach someone else how something works, that's when you learn whether or not uh, you really have a grasp of it. That's enormous. And there's a big difference between you know, using the tools in a way just to say, save money and speculate on it, which are obviously perfectly you know, fine use cases, but to another one where you're actually balancing um, obligations you know obviously every time someone purchases a phone from me not only you know, yeah I, I'm earning that money but I've now got a liability so I've got to manage FX rate risk and um, with actually purchasing a device um, so there's a kind of mark to market trade happening there but also like um, for any phone that anyone purchases out of the EU or the US um, that's where we um, I've got excuse me I've got guys supporting me so they get paid to do that and they're always they, they only get paid in in cryptocurrency as well. I mean, actually, Bitcoin. Um, I think they're Bitcoin, uh, Bit Bitcoin Maxi, although uh, they have used Monero. Um, but yeah, the um, uh, you know I'm obviously paying those, so I've got to manage that. And um, you know, uh, I think there's a couple of things I've also kind of say about this whole experience, and it's a big part of opting out. Is is that the two guys that I use, and Diverter being um, one of them in the US, um, and I have another guy in Europe. Um, uh, I don't know their legal names. Um, it, this has actually been something that's been put together through completely through trust and um, you know that can only be done with, with that's only enabled through something like Bitcoin and Monero. Um, I can pay them without knowing their legal name because you don't need to know that. Um, incentives are aligned. You know they know that it's not worth. You know, you know these are relationships that have been forged in FOSS community specifically and. Um, I effectively recruited them because they had, you know, charitable instincts in them anyway to help people out. And um, it's pretty easy to actually work out character online in a way that's far easier than, say, doing an interview in in, in meat space. Uh, with someone that just say walks through the door, and and it's been a fantastic experience. And I feel kind of, you know, I just couldn't have done this without them. And in actual fact, um, Diverter himself is being researching how to host, say, F-Droid repos. Um, he's he's done forks of apps and in fact even like um, we use a really good PGP tool called Tessacube and it wasn't running on my Android device he just compiled it himself using a kind of an up-to-date version of, um, of uh, like the Android and um, uh, his platform tools or the Android Android studio that was it and just yeah that worked and, you know I mean all he needed to do was effectively compile again but I've got an APK I can use just because that software at that time wasn't being maintained so kind of you know we've got a lot of support from these guys and none of that would have happened could I have not actually entered into some form of commerce with them? The other thing I say that's been a big bit of a learning experience from all of this is actually, um, is really how how much how much the fiat world really sucks, um, and particularly credit cards. Uh, you know, I've done a I've got a lot of experience in uh, in broking 
um, in institutional investment management, um, even some private banking and all that, but I don't have any experience in the retail side of things. I've never worked for a credit card company or anything like that. And um, it's really awful the way credit cards work. And there's a reason I think that merchants are, uh, are consolidating and you've got large companies like Amazon doing so well is because if you are accepting funds from say using say something like Stripe as a payment processor or PayPal, like it cannot be stressed enough that we got we can't forget some of the narratives from say 2014 and 2013 that were very popular in the cryptocurrency space about not having chargebacks where someone does a transaction, you send out your your, your merchandise, and then someone afterwards says, "Oh, I didn't receive it," and you just have to deal with fraud. It's an absolute joy to deal with cryptocurrency and um, as a merchant. Because you know that there is no recourse and i think that we forget about that especially in this kind of age on twitter where everyone obsesses over sound money um, and, you know, uh, and, and you know the, the joy of saving and um, even while we're kind of still looking at incredibly nascent cryptocurrency that kind of experience 50 percent drops or whatever is, is it still there's a fundamental use case of bitcoin of an arrow is like is good e-commerce. It's the fact that I can take a payment, I can use my own node and validate and verify it, and then I, could, you know, I know that that can be trusted, and I can then go ahead and do my job, and I'm not having to pass costs on to customers um, for for that for managing fraud. Yeah, I mean, my my only real exposure to kind of using cryptocurrency as a merchant, kind of quote unquote, is accepting donations, and that's been incredibly freeing and and simple compared to using the traditional financial system but as someone who likes to pay in cryptocurrency literally whenever possible and i'll yeah. pay more because of how freeing it is from a privacy perspective how simple it can be and quicker it can be and just how much uh i don't know you you, you avoid so many of the pitfalls of using credit cards and all of the issues that go around that and there are definitely drawbacks compared to that you don't get your reward points or whatever but um, it's it's a it's incredibly freeing, and it's a whole nother side of opting out. That the more you the more you do it, the more you just I don't know. I've I've fallen in love with cryptocurrency more and more. The more I actually use it to pay for things, like, uh, I agree. Really, it's home. I really love paying with it. I mean, I'd say the only thing that kind of comes close to the user experience of paying with crypto is is using something like I haven't used Apple Pay because I've literally never had an Android device with Google on it. But I've used Apple Pay, and that's. Um, that's pretty good um, in terms of, you know, you get presented with like a, a check. And in fact, for a while, we supported Stripe payments of Anushi, so you could use Apple Pay um, to pay there. And, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons I actually went with Stripe in the first place um, was to, uh, because I thought my, my actual expectation was is that we're going to be selling to some iPhone users, especially iPhone Bitcoiners, who will be buying this phone to get an actual proper Bitcoin wallet and won't have a way of privately doing this. Um, and actually, it was also another reason I even kind of, although I've obviously been a long-term fan of Monero, having used it for years, I also kind of, it was another big reason for me putting Monero into the store. It was because, well, if you're an iOS user and you want to move to Android, like, how are you going to pay for a Mimushi device and get privacy from me? So, you know, you just cannot really do it uh, easily um, using um, using ios bitcoin wallets so your only choice you know thanks to uh, to the cake wallet guys was was actually to pay monero so it was actually a very pragmatic reason i went with monero um funnily enough since then um you know i think it was a good thing for me to install because um i think we're probably in the position now of actually having more customers that use monero than bitcoin 
And I mean, you know, we're not doing kind of volumes of devices that kind of merit kind of releasing stats or anything like that. But I've noticed a, a substantial uptick. I think you know, certainly when we pivoted away from Copperhead is that we're selling more devices now than we were. Um, I think you know, obviously being open source helps that. Um, a lower price point helps that. But um, I think you know, there's a stronger ethos in the Monero community towards open source um, than we've seen in the Bitcoin community, unfortunately. Big watering down the culture in Bitcoin, uh, which has been enormously frustrating to see. And um, it's been really heartening to see kind of how well received uh, Manushi stuff has been by kind of Monero users. And I think Monero users are also, there's a there's a pragmatism as well in the fact that, that you know, if you're using Monero, there's probably a good chance that you don't want to spend time managing UTXOs and really tinkering with your privacy. So they like the idea that they can just kind of go to a site and put in, you know, maybe a fake name in a mailbox, you know, flash a QR and, you know, off you go. You know, a few days later, you get a private phone coming in the post. So I think, I think there's a, you know, there's a reason that they're kind of, a, they, they, they're responding to it more than Bitcoiners. I'd love to hear that. Yeah, I, I think I've seen a lot of people in my circles on Twitter who are Monero users jump jump at the opportunity to to use Mamushi, and hopefully, hopefully, we'll see more and more of more of that Monero usage actually increase in these merchant use cases. I, I think so, and I think even I think it's interesting as well is is that um, we're at a kind of interesting juncture now where Lightning use is picking up a bit in Bitcoin, and I you know we're you know, people are managing the UX challenges with that you know. Um, um, although it's kind of got the benefit of some instant payments, um, you've got to manage you know, channels, um, you can deal with kind of payment failures, but also I think more pe more people are concerned about potentially the privacy implications of um, of, of running Lightning um, and, and obviously the security and the, the overhead uh, to that. So I think it's kind of, it's an interesting space to see is, is that where you are getting merchants is the ones that are offering Lightning, seeing kind of what, what usage they're getting on Lightning, and especially if they're offering Monero as another option, whether people kind of opt to go one or the other. I certainly know um, the Silent Link um, site, they sell kind of eSIMs, um, like anonymous eSIMs. Um, they offer uh, Lightning and they don't do Monero, but I also know that one of their payments that they kind of said to me was an example of Lightning usage being paid, picked up had actually out of band, they'd use something like FixFloat or something like that, that they'd used Monero to pay for a lightning transaction to go to that site anyway. So uh, <laughs> take that as you will. Awesome. Well, last question I wanted to get to here was uh, just real quick. What advice would you give to someone who's just starting to realize the need for personal privacy? Um, I think you've got to think about, like, don't get intimidated uh, with trying to be anonymous that's the first thing there's pretty much no need to be anonymous these days um, for a lot of people for in most kind of walks of life um, obviously it's kind of fun to to think about the idea of being anonymous and you know, using some of these tools um, I, I, th I think you just kind of I think you need to be mindful of what you sign up for so uh, you know if you are going to be starting off with these tools, don't just assume that you need to use something. So for example, if you're starting a new job, maybe you're being a real estate agent or you're starting up a new shop, and there's always that temptation, right? Okay, well, I'm gonna to have to have a page on Instagram or Facebook or whatever like that, you know, because everyone else does it and it's important to my job. Think through, do you actually need that? You know, how much more effort is it just a couple of weekends to get a pretty basic site up there where you own 
your own data and you can kind of not have to sacrifice too much. Just make those choices. Think about when you're, for, you know, in terms of privacy perspective, when you are signing up to a service, what are you signing away? You don't necessarily need to read all the terms and conditions and everything you sign up for, but think about the information that you're, you're giving out there and just what would it be like if someone was to kind of to actually see that in person. Um, you know, we give out our addresses way too much these days, as we're seeing with things like the ledger hack and things like that. And a lot of people think, oh, well, you know, everyone has my address and all that. But when you start getting your addresses, say, tied up with certain purchases, that that moves on to a whole a whole other ball game. And and I think you just need to pause a bit and not rush into necessarily all the new fads. Um, be aware of kind of companies that are specifically marketing in a way that's engineered to to get engagement. Um, I, I know kind of when Clubhouse, you know, the, the chat room thing kind of came out, they were kind of big on making exclusive and only going to iOS users and, and those type of things. Like, be aware of like the techniques that um, the company's using. And I think also just in terms of just, you know, general principles is if you've got an app that provides a function Find people that that use these as a day-to-day -day basis and go on, whether it's Telegram or Twitter, you'll always find plenty of people happy to, uh, to dispense advice. That's one thing that's not they're not short of on Twitter. Um, but, you know, look for an open source um, alternative if you can. Um, and um, look at kind of people that have got maybe a similar, similar risk profile or similar life to you when you're getting their advice. Um, I think be aware of friendships in the place you know um, people will shill products uh, not always kind of uh, 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 for the wrong reasons but you know people like to help friends out and um, you know you see, you see it with Mamushi as well there's guys that I've helped in the past that then you know I'll see them on Twitter dropping you know I'll buy, buy a device from Mamushi help them out you know you know, yeah, they've used it maybe, and maybe they're a happy customer, and that's great. But also be aware that probably a mate of mine. That's kind of why they, they they may be doing it, and that's happening all over the space. You know, journalists that are shilling um, certain kind of software, they may be doing it because they've got a personal relationship with the developer. I think you know, there's a there's good reasons why. If you look at Graphene OS, the the attention that that project got was because of um, certain journalists that had maybe a relationship with Edward Snowden, and that then caused a tweet, and then suddenly everyone rallies around. So just be a bit cautious of some of the, you know, what gets championed just because some thought leader or whatever says it. You know, really kind of go and use it yourself. And I think the other thing I just lastly I'd kind of caution um, is is that is open source is no panacea for everything. Um, one of the reasons I recommend something like software like Signal and Threema is not just that they're open source, is that there's actually been audits on, on, on that software. And you know, for me, that's really like, uh, that's the kind of the gold tier of software that you can get is, is that if you can find software that not only has got like obviously active use, but if there's actually, you know, the, the Monero uh, core team are great for this, is actually you know, paying someone to kind of go in and interrogate that software and test it really put it under the microscope that can kind of that can really reduce your your, your, your risk factors hugely because there's a lot of software out there that's open source um, that that just really isn't getting used or is not getting contributed to anymore that still exists as recommended on old blogs uh, that really just may not cut it anymore and um, so i think you know, that, that you just got to be aware of that when you're using it great well Thanks so much for coming on. I mean, we, we went probably double the, the length so far of, of episodes, but I feel like it was super easy. There's just so much to, so much to chat about. So thanks for, thanks for jumping on. It's been great. 
Not at all. Thank you ever so much for your time, and hope it's not too late for you. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. Uh, it's definitely late, but it's it's been great. So, last thing, where's the best place for people to to find or communicate with you? Um, I think probably like uh, uh, the best places where I'm kind of most around, just because the larger communities are Twitter and Telegram. Um, so they're kind of pace. Um, certainly, don't feel afraid if you've got specific questions. There's a contact form on the site uh, to drop into. I'd also say is is that if you're an open source developer, specifically like a, a Java dev, and you've got something that you say wanted to see um, on on Android or something like that, that kind of that you think kind of belongs in you know, in our mission, and you know you're either looking kind of say for some funding or you kind of want a platform to to kind of you get your software out on, um, definitely drop a note. Um, you know, um, even if we can't help specifically, you know, there's plenty of people that, that we are in touch with that may do. Um, yeah, absolutely, and um, yeah, don't be afraid to, to try these tools yourself. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Opt Out. If you did, please take a moment and subscribe to the podcast, or if you're already subscribed, share it with one friend or family member this week. As always, you can check out the links to Max's content and contact info, as well as links to all of the tools we discussed in the show notes for this episode, or at optoutpod.com. Now get out there and opt out this week. For this week's project to help you opt out, I'd recommend you take a look at Standard Notes, an encrypted by default notes app that is free and open source, but does offer subscriptions, while accepting Monero, to Standard Notes Extended. For those that choose to support Standard Notes via subscription, extensions add a lot of power features, including encrypted attachment uploads to your own web dev server, like Nextcloud, as well as many text editors. However, the base free version is still extremely powerful, has great encryption defaults, and is an excellent choice for moving off of closed source and surveilled solutions like Google Keep or Evernote. For more info, check out the links in the show notes.